0: Hello, hello. Once again, I'm looking forward to sharing with you another solid guest. His name is Jim Lukaszewski. He's known as America's Crisis Guru, and he has some really cool perspectives. Hard one that have come from him, parachuting into crisis scenarios, offering advice, seeing what gets listened to, what doesn't get listened to, and seeing who else gets listened to and why or why not. He's documented that in his book, Why Should the Boss Listen to You, and in his speeches and such. So you're going to learn, one, why it's better to give options instead of solutions, two, the seven disciplines of being a trusted advisor, and three, the six steps to giving impactful three-minute advice. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things that's over at awesome at your slash F five zero. Or if you just want those takeaways faster, you can receive that in our gold nugget email list, which shows up in your inbox. And gives you just the takeaways associated with what a guest had to say in an email you can read in less than two minutes. So here's a quick bit about Jim. Uh, Jim Lukaszewski is one of America's most visible corporate go-to people for senior executives when there is trouble in the room or on the horizon. As America's crisis guru registered trademark. He has been recognized for a lifetime achievement in his profession by most of the major public relations organizations in the U.S. He has served for 22 years on the Public Relations Society of America's Board of Ethics and Professional Standards and is now its first emeritus member. He's written 12 books, including Why Should the Boss Listen to You?, and hundreds of articles. Here's Jim. Jim, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Love to be here. Thank you. Well, so I'd love to hear. So you're you're known as America's Crisis Guru. Could you maybe tell us a juicy story just to kind of warm things up a little bit about a time that uh, there was a crisis you parachuted in and how that organization resolved it well?
1: But actually, you know, the, <laughs> it sort of described my business perfectly. There, I it's pretty much what I do. People really wait to call me until it's leaking, foaming, thinking, and burning, and then all of a sudden I have to show up. Or, and, and increasingly these days, you don't show up because there isn't time to get even get on an airplane. You got to get to work, mm. and we got the technology these days to really get it done. But um, I, I was just in Arizona recently, and um, the company had called me after they'd had an accident with some of their transportation equipment. It's not a large company, but, it's, you know, it's a, it's a medium-sized company. And um, they were concerned that they were caught unawares and some 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 employees were injured and some went to the hospital, some to intensive care. Nobody died, it turns out. And um, I didn't actually know much about the accident that triggered all of this. In my pre-meeting with the CEO of the company, I said, you know, I, in talking to some of your employees, no one really knows too much about what happened. And maybe you should walk them through what you did as a way to get them in the mood for dealing with this. Mm-hmm. And so when he opened the meeting, and typically when we, when we start this process, I like to have the chairman or the owner or the, the senior person to open the meeting because that sends a signal to everybody that this is an important meeting right. that we really mean it about getting ready for these things. And he went through the in quite great detail. And it, it, the story was amazing. What happened was it was a vehicle. it did It rolled over actually several times. And the people were injured. It happened um, actually in, in uh, Nevada. But in any event, his first – what he did was he called the owner of the company. He was not the owner, but he was the CEO. And um, they split up the duty immediately. And the the owner of the company got on the telephone and discovered immediately, for example, that they didn't actually have email addresses for some of the key officials in one place. They had them all over the place. So they wasted an hour's time trying to find people. This is very common. Mm. But the, the the CEO who was talking went to the hospital and stayed near the CEU, uh, the ICU rather, uh, for the entire time. And this is, a, this is a circumstance where some of the people in the accident didn't speak English. Hmm. And uh, they, you know, so they're having great trouble there. They're, they're gravely injured, and um, uh, it turns out that some years earlier, his company had been using a, a kind of software that translated lots of different languages, and after about three or four hours of real con- confusion and fear, um, he remembered this software, checked it out, and was able to transfer it to his handheld device. And so, all of a sudden, you know, the the, the, the gates opened, and they could translate the Spanish or whatever Portuguese into English, English into Portuguese, and things got really better. He... Began to, He began to fly in relatives from – he did this all from the hospital, got people, first-class flights to come in to be with their injured relatives and that sort of thing. And what he was describing was, in many respects, the perfect response. And I'm, mm-hmm. as I'm hearing him talk, I'm thinking, you know, typically what happens is somebody fouled up and didn't fix the brakes or somebody, right. you know, um, was careless or the driver fell asleep at the wheel. Um, but this was a, a sort of the opposite circumstance in almost every issue and in, instance, except that they they weren't ready for it. That's all. So it turned into a much different meeting because then we were talking not so much about crisis uh, communications. I usually talk about readiness and making mistakes. We were talking about how leaders behave in crisis, because the main lesson in what I do is you know we don't really you know there's so much focus on crisis is about what the media is going to do, and and the block. The bloviators and the bellyachers these Uh days in social media. But here's a company that essentially, on its own, had these inclinations in every respect to do the right thing. And that's really how I define integrity. So we had a discussion about integrity and, and purpose and compassion. And we had a really solid three and a half meeting with all these our meeting with these folks, totally engaged, because it turned out to be something entirely different than they anticipated. But it was really a tremendously powerful exercise for them going through this. And I left uh, in the middle of the afternoon, but, you know, here's a group that's really committed. They've already called me three times to really get this down and get it right in the record book, so to speak, so that they can teach it to people in the company and replicate what they did this time. Very interesting circumstance. Often not the case, though.
0: Well, it is a happy story. Yes, kicking us off well with some some positivity. And I know that positive Remarks and focus are a big piece of of what you teach in your book and your work associated with why should the boss listen to you? And could you maybe draw the connection a bit between crisis communication stuff and the boss listening to you? How did you find yourself in both those worlds? Well, it's
1: interesting because it's a longer story than we have time to talk about as to how I actually got into this business. But uh, I actually came out of government uh, years ago and I was in government. I was handling the bad news for the governor of the state. And, and that's what mm-hmm. we're stating. Lots of people handle it. I just happen to be, be the person delegated to bring it to him. So <laughs> 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 I got kind of in the middle of things. When I, uh, I, I started watching and listening to people who gave advice to important people. And so when I, when I opened my own practice now many, many years ago, I work at high levels and I I work with the senior people in the organizations because of the nature of the problems they face. And in that capacity, you get a chance to, to see a lot of people give advice. So in moving forward, you know what I recognized was, you know, uh, and began to, to answer the, the question, which was how, how, do, why do they listen? Why does a person in trouble listen to somebody and not listen to somebody else? They're both very smart. They both might be highly educated, but one penetrates and has influence, and the other doesn't penetrate, doesn't have influence. And so I began to sort of, kind of catalog what were the things that made. People more influential. I was learning for myself. I didn't even think about a book at that point in time. But as I as I moved through what I was doing, I found myself working with the staff functions that serve leadership, all of them: uh, law and uh, security, planning, uh, security, uh, HR, that sort of thing. And I, because they were so ineffective in in having influence on the boss, and they were the insiders. Yeah. I would, I've been always been an outsider, but uh, to organizations. But I believe firmly and do today. The reason I wrote the book was because there's absolutely no reason why people inside in staff functions can't be as influential as somebody who flies in from the Timbuktu, mm-hmm. gets a big buck, and uh, you know makes a presentation. So that's what the book really, really came for was to help people on the inside who are very defensive about their skills in these areas in helping senior management, especially when there are lots of people running around like me who are outside consultants. right? And so the, the, that's really what the book is about. It was really, there. It, it's really the, 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 watch the bus, listen to you, the seven disciplines of the trusted strategic advisor. That's really what I'm talking about. How to become a trusted strategic advisor.
0: Well, you, that's, you teed it up so well. That's a juicy, engaging question. And, and I'm dying to know what are some of those disciplines and, and difference makers? Between those listened to versus ignored?
1: I happen to pick seven, I guess, and in, in working with the publisher, we decided there could be thirty-one. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we do something that, that's you know, digestible for people? So I we, we settled on, and, and I had some editorial help in, in designing this, on, on seven disciplines. They're very simply, there the first one is to be trustworthy. That means trusted, have a trusted relationship with the people you're dealing with. Uh, the second one is to be a verbal visionary. And, when I, and I, I talk about that because most senior leaders don't read memos for advice in crisis. They listen to other voices of knowledgeable people mm. and make their decisions based on that. The third one is to Develop really what I call a management perspective, meaning essentially, if you walk in there, I'm a communicator. So if I if you walk in there and you talk communications, and that's all you got, I mean most leaders believe they're great communicators, and in fact, the more important the leader, the better they think they are. Whether it's true or not. And when I'm talking to my colleagues, I always ask this question, how many of you in this room, you know, have bosses who feel that they are bad communicators and uh, never <laughs> seen a hand go up yet? The fifth one is, is, is to, the, the fourth one is to think strategically. This is the hardest part for staff people is what does it mean to be strategic? And we talk about that. Now, be a window to tomorrow. This has to do with the concept of recognizing that everything that's happened to somebody, an organization, a product, a service, an agency, an organization has happened to somebody else before. And therefore, we know a lot about it because there are probably patterns we can figure on happened as a part of the circumstance you're now facing. So I teach people to be essentially uh, uh, students of patterns. And the thing about patterns is that if you understand the patterns of events, you can actually predict what's going to happen with some accuracy. Oh. Um, I always warn my clients when I make predictions, and I'm always making predictions because that's what they hire you for, what's going to happen tomorrow. I always warn them I'm going to be wrong half the time. <laughs> but here's the scary part. I'm going to be right half the time, Yeah. even in the most serious of circumstances. The, the last two are to advise constructively. I teach actually a system of giving advice. It's, it's six simple steps, and we can talk about them if there's time. And then finally, once you do all this stuff, you have to show the boss how to use what you're talking about. Because this sort of thing coming from a staff person is pretty unusual. So you have this the the op, you have this option really or this, this necessity of teaching the boss how to do what you're telling them. But the point of the book is this. There's this notion of this fallacy out there that there's a table somewhere that you're trying to get to. You heard this phrase right, I gotta get to the table. Mm-hmm. Well, the people I work with who are operating sixty percent of what I do is with operating people, they know what I talk about, and because their their employees talk about it and they and they always ask me this question, Jim, where is this table you keep talking about so, is it anywhere near my office and and if I find this place, do I have to go there and Jim, if I go there, who's going to be there? and I say, well, that's oh. easy, the same whiny internal voices you hear all the time, but the fact is the point of the book is really the bottom line of the book is that there is no such thing as a table. The table is a myth. It's still there. It's widely thought about, but it's a myth for several important reasons. One is no senior official I've ever worked for made a decision based on a gang of people in a room shouting out ideas for solving problems. You watch any meeting, senior people, and, you know, when that meeting breaks up, the boss will say, hey, Mary, you got a minute? Can you just hang back a second? Mm -hmm. No, Tom, you got got a second? That's when the real meeting is going to start. Not with the 29 consultants who were in the room and the 16 lawyers. (laughs) The only reason that bosses do that is because they got to do something with all these people whose clocks are running. So they put them all in the same room and see how they perform. And maybe one or two of the 20 will actually break through enough to get an invitation to stay after the meeting and make a real decision. And the point of the book is really that, you know, you are the table if you care enough about being a trusted strategic advisor then you have to think differently about how you how you do your job how you think about what you do and we can talk about what those those thought changes are but the point of the book is and uh, is really that essentially the tables a myth You have to do the skills I'm talking about, these seven disciplines and more, to really have the influence, the power, and the satisfaction that you're really seeking by being, you know, an efficient, effective staff person.
0: Okay, well, it absolutely does. And I've absolutely seen that happen with regard to, you know, folks hanging back. And and so, boy, there's just so much content to dig in here. So maybe within those seven disciplines, could you share, you know, what are some... Kind of frequent mistakes among some of them, like you say, be trustworthy. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You're like, oh yeah, sure, you should be trustworthy. But are there some ways that people damage their trust, or appear non-trustworthy, or they do a poor job of being a verbal visionary? Well, let's talk about those. Things. It's very interesting
1: and very important. The trustworthy, the trustworthy part is really about changing the pattern of thinking of staff people. Most of us, I'm a communicator, as I mentioned, and most communicators believe that the solution to your problems is going to be communications. Well, it's probably true to some degree, but before you can you know share your wisdom, you have to understand how the person you're advising, the person who operates the business thinks. So you start essentially with your the, the thought process that begins this way. I always tell people, you know, all problems in business All questions in business and organizations are management questions before they are any other kind of question. I don't really care what your specialty is. No, if you start talking about your human resource solution or your security solution or whatever... Before you understand how management has to resolve the problems in the first place or, or goes about resolving them, they're not going to hear you. They're just mm. not going to understand it. So the book itself study the very first two chapters of the book are about management. Why do, how do leaders lead? Where do they come from? You know, why do they want these kinds of jobs? Because they're tough jobs and bad things often happen. So, you know, my standpoint is if you want to really understand where things happen and how they, and you want to have the trustworthy, trust part of these uh, individuals, they have to understand from your perspective that you have their, their future, their thinking, your, their, their operational issues in question in mind in some substantial way. I mention trust because it's the first discipline because there are sometimes problems with trust. One of the most important questions I get asked by consultants at every level is, Jim, I I work for a guy who I trust. I I think he's honorable. I've learned a lot from him over time. But there's he has some bad things, he has some habits that he that he pursues that I'm I'm trying to change. I've been working on this for a long time. How do you do this, Jim? How do you walk in and talk to these people and get them to change? Then I I said, well, pick a problem and tell me how long you've been working with it. And I I said, I have a rule about ideas and suggestions to people who run things. It's called the 10-day rule. If they won't do it in 10 days, they are never going to do it. So get off it. You know, think about, there's a lot of things people, you can do to change people. Think of something else to, to rag on. Otherwise, whenever he, whenever he or she sees you coming, he sees this mouth moving about something he's not going to do. So, you know, give it up in 10 days. The areas I just talked about. I've been doing this a long, long time. I learned a couple of important things over time. One is that when a girl becomes a woman, mm-hmm. at whatever age that is, uh-huh. around thirteen, whatever that's thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, okay. you know, they, they become the person they're going to be in life. They just really do. Boys, boys reach this level a little later. Boys are late to everything, but uh, especially in this arena. But when we you know when a guy reaches seventeen, he becomes pretty much the person he's going to be, and. This doesn't change. It doesn't Uh change no matter what the catastrophe is in your life. People generally, you know, have have formed the way they're going to be that early in life. And it's interesting from my perspective to understand this. It took me a while to get there. But so I'm not in the change business in the way one thinks about walking and changing how people live and those sorts of things. I'm in the truth business. My job mm-hmm. is to help them understand what's going to happen or what is happening and the specific things they can do to change it. And I'm sort of the, in my practice, I'm kind of the last person you call. I always sometimes I say it's me, me or the sheriff or me and the sheriff. Oh. Because so many organizations and leaders try to do everything they can to do nothing or, or not to do much of anything just to see if it'll pass. And when it gets so bad that, you know, you have to call me, it's pretty bad. So the trust part is an important part because you have to analyze what you know it's, it's it's your trusting them as much as them trusting you. So trust matters. This whole and then you go to the notion of being a verbal visionary, which is the second uh, discipline and I mentioned quickly before most leaders tend to lead with their voices. They don't really lead by memos or books or all that other stuff. They tell people what they want or show people what they want, and then people are expected to respond. In crisis, this is especially true. And one of the things that tends tends to be really crazy as far as internal staff is concerned is that when bad things happen, the boss reaches out and finds all these consultants to come in Uh to talk to. And so what happens is the folks around the boss join, join hands, join arms, the staff are in there too, and they want to block anybody coming in from the outside to give the boss outside advice. But the problem with that is that if you're running something, when trouble happens, you want a lot of input. You want, you want, you want, you want, to, you want to ask all kinds of questions of all kinds of people, and you find that your staff is a huge barrier, you know, to getting this done. And so I coach people and counsel people, you know, if you really want to have influence and show the boss that you are trustworthy and really helpful, you get on the phone and call people that they should be talking to. Hmm. And what I tell these staff people is that your job is not to be a solution finder, first of all, because you cannot be. If you're a staff person, you don't run anything. No Hmm. staff person runs anything. And so, and most staff people don't know much about how to run a business anyway. It's one of the reasons they're staff people. So, you know, you're you're unlikely to come up with a solution that for the, you know, the the so-called silver bullet. Your job as an advisor is to provide and think up options the boss can use from which to fashion a solution as the operator of the business. It's a whole different way to think. And it's an easier way to think. It's much Hmm. harder to think of a grand solution, particularly if you have trouble with addition, multiplication, subtraction, division, as many consultants do. So the issue becomes, you know, how do you give advice? And the notion I talk about is you want to be a person who provides options for action that are chosen by the person you're advising. And some of the options are really terribly small, but terribly vital. One of the questions I ask, when I'm in a live crisis situation, the first question is, is who's talking to the victims? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a simple question, but it's amazing the crazy answers that you tend to get because nobody's really thought about it. And the lawyers have often said, don't ever talk to these people because it's big trouble. And this is also one of the problems. We'll talk about the legal issues maybe in a minute when you want to. But but um, the issue is, the verbal visionary is, you know, What your what your goal is to develop – when you make recommendations to people you always develop three options and then they you let them choose because they want to choose that's what, that's why leaders lead and <laughs> bosses boss they want to make these decisions but they want input as opposed to solutions it's very you know it's a subtle kind of a thinking but it has a tremendous impact on the boss when somebody doesn't walk in and say, I've got the perfect solution. You do what I tell you and you things will be fine because he knows that's never true. But uh, uh, he or she knows that if someone comes in and says, look, you can do nothing – you can do something, or you can do something more. Let me share some ideas with you. This making
0: sense? Well, I, I like that so much. Yes, it's really resonating with that that option perspective because it, it's sort of it almost turns me off. Like if if I'm in charge, you know, I run my own business, so I get to I get to call the shots or and stuff. So if I'm in charge, and then and then someone tells me like what I should or have to be doing, right? Or Instagram or whatever. <laughs> I already don't like it. It's like even if they're dead right, I, I am. Al- I already got my guard up. Whereas exactly. if they showed me those options, like exactly. you, know, you know, Pete, there are there are five great ways that you might want to consider promoting your podcast. You know, one is through social media, like Instagram. It's, See, if,
1: if you if you were a, if you if you run a business for two months, okay, or you or you're even a supervisor for two months, okay, you you automatically learn that there's like a half a dozen ways to do everything right. And there's a half a dozen ways to do everything wrong. The point is, there's more than one way to do everything. So the issue for for the, what the boss is doing by talking to all these voices when the crises are happening, bad situations are happening, you know, they're deciding their own evidence to justify what they're going to be doing, and they want a lot of input for that sort of thing. And it's very natural, and it's very important to recognize how they want that input. Business happens in, in crises. Especially happen in real time. So let's say you're a communicator and you, you know, or an HR person, and you you go to the briefing session, and you know that's at ten o'clock in the morning. You know you get the memo done to the boss by two in the afternoon. You get permission to come back and talk to them. Well, the people running the place have been running this problem ever since you left. So they're going to have to stop and go back to ten o'clock in the morning where you came from and listen to what you thought about. You know, all that time, and, and you're just wasting time. Mm-hmm. Just, it's not helpful. So you'll be, they'll you'll be polite because, you know, in most organizations, you're in the organization because it's relatively civil and it's a nice place to be and that sort of thing. But the moment you finish speaking, they start up, they mm-hmm. jump ahead five hours to where they are now. And, you know, it's hard to understand. So, when you ask, when, is one of the things she, well, people ask, well, what do these people want anyway? What, what do they want mm-hmm. from us? Okay. Well, what they want is very clear. The first thing that that leaders want in these situations is advice on the spot. On the spot, they want instant. You to, they don't want you to leave. And, you know, that's one of the reasons they hire out some consultants. So advice on the spot, the people who, who have to leave and write a memo, are not very helpful memo might be terrific, but you know, one thing you learn in crisis is and this is one of the great rules of crisis success is that speed beats smart every time all right. most trouble most companies get into trouble because they wait to think up they, they, they treat a crisis as though it 's just another problem that 's a little worse than something else, so they, they have meetings <laughs> and they take time and they write memos and all this stuff meanwhile victims are being created. The problems are getting worse rather than better because bad news always ripens badly. (laughs) Ask me how it's going to go. I'll tell you, worse tomorrow before it gets better. That kind of thing. So anyway, so so the second thing that they generally want. Is they want to know essentially, you know, what's going to happen? Where are we going to be tomorrow, based on where we are today? If we do the things that you tell us to do, they want people to be able to sort of forecast the future. And not sort of, they want to know. I mean, if you were in a miserable, a miserable situation, you'd like to know what's going to happen. Well, tomorrow. And here again, you no, know, you can, you can forecast. You no, know, two or three different scenarios depending on the decisions these people make. So they're still in charge, but they're getting a preview of what's going on. And, and, and interesting enough, I call this knowing they want to know what to do, and what to do next. And I first learned this lesson early in my career. I was one of four consultants chosen to be selected uh, to coach this very senior insurance executive. The company was changing its whole marketing plan. It wasn't a crisis necessarily, but they're changing its whole marketing structure and they wanted to put this very famous executive they had there in charge as in charge of being visible for the company, just representing the company. And he'd never done this before, although he's very good in person he's very, he's a very well known person, actually. So the The appointment to visit with him, he made the final choice. People selected us and tested us and all that sort of stuff, but he made the final choice himself. And um, he did it. He, you had a fifteen-minute meeting with him, and uh, you were advised to be there early because he was on time. He wrote, he ran his his day in fifteen-minute increments, so I was there early. I was greeted by. This officious woman, uh, officious woman, who actually said, Mr. Lukaszewski, he's waiting to see you. Anyone who can pronounce my name correctly without <laughs> help makes me nervous, okay? <laughs> i'm ushered into this room i walk up shake his hand i've I've seen him before i've seen him on television around town that sort of thing so i knew who he was and anyway so he reaches across shakes my hand there's a single paper on the desk just a single paper i look down and it's actually a paper with one paragraph on it and i can read that paragraph upside down it begins with jim lukashevsky and how he pronounces my name (laughs) and it's, it's, it's it's his briefing for this 15 minutes About who's in his office. So as soon as we shake hands and say yes, the lady picks up the paper, takes it out, and leaves and the doors go boom, boom, boom shut. He grabs your arm and you walk over to that window and he tells you the story of that view, okay? Mm -hmm. That's a minute and a half. You only got 15, okay? And once you start on the first window, you have to go to the second window, okay? So that's <laughs> another minute and a half
0: that tells the story. It 20% the percent
1: stuff, right? up already. <laughs> so, so we get to the third window, and my brain is saying, saying, Jim, Jim, say something that matters because the next wall has the door, <laughs> which it did. So anyway, so I stopped and I said, hey, t- would you, can I ask you a question for me? you got 14,000 people in your company. I have 14 in mind. How do you do it every day? I mean... What's the plan? I mean, how do you manage all these people and get something done? I got so many problems with 14 people. And he looks out the window and he kind of smiles and said, well, he said, Jim, now this guy, by the way, had been the head of this company for like 18 years. And before that, he was a salesman, worked his way up. He says, you know, the board hired me to be, to have this job, the CEO's job, because I think they trusted me in the sense that, that at least half the decisions I would make would be the right ones just inherently because of my experience the rest. They trusted me. He said, you know, half of the rest of the decisions, they knew that I had, you know, 31 floors of experts below me, so I wouldn't get us too badly in a ditch, you know, if something, if I made a bad decision. The problem I have with the job, he said, is that last bunch of decisions, nobody told me what they were. Nobody told me what they would be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I said, so what do you do? He says, I said, you make it up? But well, he said, Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it making things up. And then he looks out the window and smiles and says, On the other hand, you know, the higher somebody goes in an organization, the more they have to make it up every day because there's nobody there to tell them what's next. Right. When you walk in, when you walk into these people, there's one more story. You know, they 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 are very civilized. So they talk to you about fishing or whatever you're interested in, they know already, okay? But they don't want to talk about fishing. They don't care about your kids. They got a problem. (laughs) No. So if you spend 15 minutes yakking about your kids, the weather, the view and the rest of it, you're wasting their time. And the more you talk like this, the more their brain is saying, who is this guy? Who let him in here? For God's sake, I got stuff to get us solved today. So my book is about the book is really what I, my philosophy is that to be workable, it has to be simple. It has to be sensible, it has to be doable, it has to be achievable, and it has to be useful. If it's outside any of those little boundaries, you're wasting somebody's time, more than likely, somebody more important than you.
0: Mm. Well, that's so that's good.
1: what the book is about.
0: And, and so can you tell me, when you're, when you're actually delivering that advice, you say there are six steps to doing that optimally. And, and what are those steps?
1: Yeah, I call it the three-minute drill. There are other similar systems to it, but they all, they're all they all long. There are eight or nine steps and all the rest. But, but let, me, let me walk you through the advice-giving process. And I call this, this whole concept really is advise constructively. Okay, advise constructively. And the six parts are very simple. And, there, and it's, it's also another principle of mine called talking to time. When I write memos, in a corporate setting especially, or letters, or whatever they happen to be, they all have a word count at the top. And they have a word count at the top because, remember I talked about this executive living in 50-minute increments. They all do. So, you know, if he gets a a draft document from me that says 450 words, it's likely to be on the one side of a sheet of paper. They can deal with that, okay? Mm -hmm. But if he gets a paper from me that has 10 pages and it says 4,500 words on it, you know, what's he going to read? He's only going to read the first page doesn't matter how brilliant I am. He's only going to read the first page. So the issue here is always thinking about the time you're consuming of these people and how they work. They make decisions, a whole lot of fragments of information, but they don't necessarily make it based on some tome that you wrote, you know, in your senior year in college on some aspect of running a business. Um, That's what they have lower-level people to do, to read the tomes and boil them down to one page, so Mm to speak. So the same is true with, with actually giving advice, and, you, and I, 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 when I teach this process, and it's a life changer. I mean, it changes your relationship with people. I tell them you have to talk about with, with your boss and the people you're working with how you give advice, and talk about the, how you think about it and walk through it. Now, let me walk through it. It only takes a minute to talk about. It takes three minutes to do, but a minute to talk about. Okay, the, the each step is timed. So that when you're done with this strategy, you consume three minutes. And the reason I know that is because the metric I'm using is 150 words per minute. In English-speaking cultures, right. we talk about 150 words a minute. So that means that if, you, if you're, the process you use consumes three minutes, that means you have 450 words to give your information. And that's where we're headed with the three-minute drill. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you tell a boss, I need three minutes of your time, Could actually be done.
0: And it sounds easier to say yes to. 10 minutes. Oh, I don't know. Three. Oh, how could I say no?
1: (laughs) But anyway, here are the six steps. The first step is what I call the, the introduction step 60 words, six O words just under 30 seconds, and the purpose is to introduce what you're talking about. So many times, even in crisis situations, we walk into an office with somebody and we immediately start giving advice or talking about something that's important to us, obviously, but this person was somewhere else before you walked in the room. This is especially true of operating executives. They, they spend their whole lives in meetings and presentations and decision making circumstances. So when you walk in with something out of the blue, you may be, it may be fresh in your mind, but you need to introduce what you're talking about. Why are we spending three minutes together? Okay. The second step is also 60 words. And I call this uh, essentially the information step or the, the explanation step, excuse me. And what I'm talking about here is why are we meeting? What is the urgency? What, mm-hmm. what is the issue? What is the problem we're talking about? This, again, is 60 words, or just under 30 minutes. So we're bringing this person along, getting them out of where they were mentally into the, into the vein you want them to be in, okay? The third step is also 60 words. This is what I call the goal step, G-O-A-L. And what this means is, and this is true of any leader, they you know, we make presentations and so often when we make presentations we don't reveal the punchline until the end. Mm. And if you're a boss, you want to know where it's going, okay? So Answer first. So you have to talk about what the outcome is going to be before we've even talked about what the circumstances are. And I call it the goal step because, and I've learned this, you know, if they're going to say no in 20 minutes after presentation, they're going to say no after 60 seconds. So why not save them 18 minutes and get to no early mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than waiting until, you know, it's sort of like all over. It sounds crazy, but it's very, very helpful. It oh, settles yeah. them down. So then we get to the fourth step, which is what I call the money step. This is the option step. And I referred to this earlier. This is where you're going to give this person three options to choose from. And I said, you know, the three options are doing nothing, which is always a strategy in almost any situation. And crisis, half the time, doing nothing is actually an important strategy. Because if you're doing doing something, when you don't know things, it gets worse because you made it worse. But anyway, doing nothing is one. I call that the 0% option. The second option is doing something, which is 100% option. And then the third option is doing something more, the 125% option. You get a full minute, 150 words to lay these out. And you can do this, okay? And one of the reasons is you're generally talking to pretty smart people. They can figure mm-hmm. these things out. What you're giving them is a pathway that sorts things out in a very productive way, okay? Now, if you do this, when you get to this point, there's going to be a question the boss is going to ask you, which is step five. And that question is, okay, you give me three options. If you were me without my, you know, perks, bonuses, company plan and the rest of it, of course, mm-hmm. which one would you choose? So many times I see good advice going forward and they get to this question and somehow the advice giver freezes because they don't want to choose. They want ah. the boss to choose. Okay. So they haven't thought about it. I, I call this the recommendation step. I'm telling people when you use the system, make a choice. Make a choice. If they don't do, if they don't use it, who cares? Right. If they don't use anything you say, who cares? But make a choice because they're going to want you to do that. They're going to want your input on what you're suggesting. 60 words again, just under 30 seconds. And then if you do make a choice, be ready for the, for the final question, which is, and why did you, why do you want to do item, you know, choice B mm-hmm. over A and C? I call that the justification step. And again, 60 words. And if you add up, if I got my word count right, it's 450 words. It's a three-minute drill. But the, I've always thought that the reason I'm in the room is because for two reasons. My selfish reason is I want to see how this goes. Mm-hmm. I want to see how pe- why people decide what they decide. And when you think about it, I'm more of a management anthropologist than a communicator. My job is to study and understand how leaders think, how leaders behave, how leaders decide. And so I want to be there for as much of the time as I can be. So I'm less invested in the advice I give from the standpoint that it has to survive the whole process, which is awfully frustrating. Right. Or I just want to see how the thing works. I want to make a kind of contribution to it. And the more of the process, actually, that I get to see, the more I get to help
0: going down the road. I want to make sure we, we get to cover off kind of the, the final piece, the fast faves. Yep. And so if you could share with us a favorite quote, something that you find inspiring again and again.
1: Well, I think you know, my favorite quote in, in the world I work is the one I mentioned already, speed beats smart every time.
0: Okay. And how about a favorite sort of a resident nugget or, or piece that you share in your books or your, your training that gets people to really nodding their heads and, and taking notes and, and retweeting?
1: My job is to work with, with very busy people who have lots on their mind, who are very smart, and many of them are a lot smarter than me, but to get their attention. And actually, it's not so much something I read, or, but it's the techniques I use to get their attention. A couple of things I use. For example, you notice I've used a lot of numbers today when I talk. Mm-hmm. People often ask me, you know, Jim, you know, when I'm talking in a meeting, nobody's writing anything. I don't know what they're doing. But Whenever you talk, people are writing. Well, how does that happen? And the answer is I make them write because everything I talk about that matters, I use numbers, small numbers with four, five is a big number. But the moment I mentioned that there are three things you have to do to get this done, people reach for their pencils. Right. That's what I'm doing. My job is really to get their attention and get them to interact with what I'm talking about.
0: And what would you say is the best way to find you if folks want to learn more and check out your stuff? Well, there's,
1: there's lots of ways. My my uh, telephone number is 203-948-7029. Uh, I, that phone lives with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can text me and email me on that phone. I have a website, which is a very important website in crisis. One of the most important around is www.e911.com. E911.com. You can catch me on the, on the web. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, it's pretty easy to find me if you if you Google me. There's right now. There's about seventy-eight thousand entries that pop up when you Google James E. Lukashewski. So I should be findable.
0: Okay. <laughs> and have a favorite. Challenge or, or parting call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs.
1: I think actually it would be something I refer to as the ingredients of leadership, and I will just made there, there's, there's I've written a monograph around. It. People want to want to have that they can certainly write. You know, send it to them. But it's to be positive. It's to be constructive. It's to be outcome focused that's pretty much like you know do it now challenge it now change it now fix it now but my favorite of this list of attributes of leadership is the last one which is to be essentially consistently and constantly incrementally improving what you do every day from your perspective Mm. i actually have if if someone wants it i actually have a couple of what i call self-audits that will help them do that sort out their lives a lot better that's what i'm about better life being
0: more influential and being more, really being a happier person, doing the important work. Mm. Amen. Well, Jim, thanks so much. This has been a, a lot of fun and I'm certain I've got some takeaways and I think everyone else did too. So I wish you tons of luck in in the crises and, and, and all that you're up to here. Thanks so much. Pete. Good talking with you. Oh, you too. I Bye know. Bye-bye. Oh, I particularly dug that three-minute, 450 words. What are the key pieces you want to check off in order to make sure that you're heard well? very handy. So again, you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned that's over at awesome at your job.com slash F five zero. And I hope you'll stick with us for the next one. Episode 51, we got Amanda Mitchell sharing how to stop some of the corporate insanity and drama, that could be disrupting uh, your experience at work until then.